one of the uh, questions that somebody had asked me was, can Christians celebrate Halloween? Is it okay for Christians to celebrate Halloween? And with October upon us, I thought, what better time to answer that question than now? Because it's one that Christians have different views on, different opinions on, and that the church is, in some places, divided on, at least the church in America. In other countries, obviously, this is not as much of an issue. But in America, it can be, and churches take different approaches. Christians take different approaches. And, you know, some people are adamant that you cannot celebrate Halloween, that it's the devil's day, that it's worshiping demons or celebrating evil or, or something like the, along those lines. Other people think, well, no, it's just when you dress up and go get candy and have fun and it celebrates the fall and it's not a big deal. And then there are Christians who have tried to split the difference. Churches, they want to be like, you know, have something for the neighborhood, some kind of outreach but they also don't want to be seen as participating in something that supposedly celebrates evil. So they invented a thing called the fall festival, which is basically Halloween for Christians that don't want to say that they're celebrating Halloween. You give out candy, there's pumpkins and jack-o'-lanterns and dressing up and costumes. Let's not lie. It's Halloween. Uh, but they call it fall festival in order to just avoid step around that. It's kind of a Christian loophole, which I've always found interesting. And so rather than give a quick answer, I could give you a yes answer or a no answer. And some of you may be like, well, yeah, that's what I want. Too bad. We're going to think through this issue. Disciple Dojo, we don't exist to tell you what to believe. We exist to equip you on how to form your beliefs, how you can arrive at a biblical ethic, whether it's about politics, whether it's about sex, whether it's about um, entertainment industry, whether it's about anything like that, what we want to do is give you the biblical foundation so that you can answer the question for yourself in a way that, that aligns with your convictions, with your conscience, and most importantly, with scripture. And so I think it's, that's at least my role in this, my calling and, and what I want this Bible study to do for people is not tell you what to think, but help you in how you think about this and any other other number of issues. And so what we're going to do is there's nothing about Halloween in the Bible. I'm not a historian of Halloween. Uh, I don't know the exact ways that it's been celebrated throughout history. I have friends, some of you on my friends timeline, you can chime in with comments in terms of the origins of Halloween from a historical perspective. But I know originally it came from All Hallows Eve, which was the day before All Saints Day. And All Saints Day was when the souls of those who had gone and died in the Lord were uh, memorialized, were celebrated, their life and their witness. And so All Hallows Eve, uh, traditions developed around that. And, and I've heard everything from Halloween was originally intended to mock the devil. That's why there were horns and pitchforks and cloven hooves and grotesque masks as it was seen as a way of mocking the powers of evil because Satan's uh, chief sin was believed to be pride. And so the way you uh, combat someone whose sin is pride is you mock that pride, you make fun of them. And there may be something to that. I don't know. I don't know how much of that is true, how much of that is urban legend. Others uh, believe that Halloween has demonic origins, pagan origins, a time of uh, talking to the dead or when spirits are believed to be active. Um, I, it's different things to different people from what I've seen. I used to live 
when I was in seminary, I lived outside of Boston, Massachusetts, and I would go over to Salem on Halloween. So Salem on Halloween is like uh, New Orleans on Mardi Gras or Savannah on St. Patrick's Day. It's just crazy. Like Halloween is this massive festival in Salem. And a lot of the people in Salem are actually Wiccan uh, adherents, people that practice Wicca, the religion of Wicca and witchcraft. And so they, for them, for many of, not all, for many of them though, Halloween is a very spiritual holiday and they would celebrate all things pagan, all things witchcraft. Uh, and so I would participate in with churches there that would do outreaches on Halloween where one church, Salem United Methodist would uh, do all night prayer services and open the doors of the church and serve hot chocolate to people who were reveling, partying, uh, or just curious and wanted to come in out of the cold. Um, and then I also was with groups of seminary students that would just go into the downtown Salem during the parade and would talk to people, would have discussions, would, you know, just do, I mean, not overt evangelism, but would just kind of connect with people. And so there was a lot of different ways that it was manifest, but Halloween in Salem was very different than Halloween in Savannah where I grew up. Uh, as a kid, as a pastor's kid, we, our church had Halloween parties, Halloween festivals. We had a haunted house at the church one time. Um, my dad, who's a pastor, loves old horror movies from like the fifties and sixties, the old movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon and Bram Stoker's Dracula, Frankenstein, Werewolf, The Mummy, all of those old, um, Lon Chaney type monster movies. Like he just, he loved those growing up and the community that we were in, the inner city community, uh, Halloween was just a time of dressing up and getting candy from the neighbors and being with each other and doing bobbing for apples and carving pumpkins and all of those things. It was, it was like just a community thing without any spiritual overtones to it. In fact, see little Yoda here, this little guy, this, this was, this is obviously baby Yoda. But this was my the first thing I ever dressed up as for Halloween was this guy, or the older version, um, was Yoda. I was probably about this tall, too. And it was just a time to dress up and go around the neighborhood with my friends and get candy that we would then eat and parcel out and uh, you know ration my sister and I for the rest of the year to see how long we could make it last. So... It didn't have any of the connotations for us that it did for people in Salem. And then we moved from the inner city to a little town of Pooler, Georgia, where it was much more, um, I was trying to think of a nice way, but it was just redneck. <laughs> it was just small town redneck, South Georgia. And Halloween there, all of a sudden there were churches and friends that did not celebrate Halloween. That that was the devil. You don't do mess with that. We don't, we don't, no, none of that. And so I've experienced all of these different, in my life, different responses to the question of Halloween. And it's interesting to think about those and the different ways that they're either celebrated or commemorated. But for me, it, it draws me into an issue in scripture that the early churches, the early Christians faced that to me has a lot of parallels, not perfect parallels, but enough that we can draw a principle from it. And that's what we do in biblical ethics is we, we look at our world and we see an issue. Okay, so in this case, Halloween. Then we look at scripture 
and we study scripture, and I don't mean a pick a verse. The worst way to form your ethic is by proof texting. You know, this verse, this verse, this verse, put them together. That's what the Bible teaches. No, that's not how you study scripture. Um, I wish more preachers would learn this. You, you look at the world of scripture, and you look at the overall redemptive teaching of the Bible, and you look at the, the, the context of what the scriptures say and what they were addressing and the issues at the time, and you find, okay, how did they deal with that issue? What principles are they using to deal with that issue that I then can take and deal and apply to this issue? That's how you do biblical ethics. And it's not always a one-to-one. There's not always something that perfectly parallels our culture in biblical culture. They're not the same. There's 2,000 years separating us for one. There's three languages of Scripture, none of which we speak. There's cultures and customs and history, all of this stuff. So our world is fundamentally different in many ways from the Bible world, but it's also fundamentally the same in many ways, enough that we can pull a principle from the overall teaching of Scripture and apply it to our lives today. And that's what I want to do as we answer this question about Halloween and whether Christians in good conscience can celebrate it. Can you send your kids trick-or-treating? Can you go to a Halloween, uh, to a haunted house or, or to a fall festival or whatever you want to call it? Um, or should we abstain? Is it a time that we circle the wagons and pull back and just pray for this lost, dying, pagan world? You know, or is it somewhere in between? Well, there was an issue in the early church, and we're going to look at it uh, from two passages, or two or three passages, seeing how far we can get. But the church in Corinth dealt with some issues that were divisive, and the church in Rome. So we're going to look at the church in Corinth and the church at Rome and get a quick overview. But one of the issues in both churches was you had people who had become followers of Jesus from pagan backgrounds, from Roman backgrounds, or from a Corinthian background. Both cities were steeped in actual, and when I say pagan, I mean literal paganism. I mean, you worshiped idols, you prayed to other gods, you went and participated in feasts at temples that were seen as part of your civic patriotic duty in dedication to other gods or lords. And this was just normal life. And so coming out of that, when people became followers of Jesus, which was a Jewish faith at the time, it was seen as an, a sect, an offshoot of Judaism. Well, the Jews were the complete opposite. Throughout history, Jews had had nothing to do with paganism. Jews had rather be martyred than eat pagan food that might be unclean or that might have been offered to a god or a goddess. The Jews would rather uh, die than participate in pagan idolatry, so much so that the Roman Empire realized we can't stamp out this Jewishness. These people are too committed to their faith, so we're going to give them an exemption. If you're a Jew, you pray to your God and just pray on behalf or pray to your God for favor for the emperor and we'll let you, we'll let you be. You don't have to participate in the pagan ceremonies as long as you pray to your God for this empire we will let you continue to worship your God. And so, so Jews were seen as this, uh, this salt and light in their world, by themselves at least. By the outside culture, they were seen as an aberration, a weird, kind of like how we see the Amish in many ways. And so this is the context into which the church came into being. So now you have Jewish followers of Jesus 
all of the apostles, the early apostles were Jewish. Um, all, or all of the disciples and the authors of the New Testament were Jewish. And Pop, maybe Luke might have been Gentile, but the verdict's out on that. But regardless, Christianity was a Jewish movement. And Judaism was concerned before the time of Jesus, before the New Covenant, with marks of identity, ritual purity, circumcision, food laws, holiday celebrations. This is what was the core of Jewish national ethnic identity. And it had people, empires had tried to stamp it out for centuries. So it was fiercely guarded by the Jewish people. Now you have all of a sudden these Jews coming into town saying, hey, our Jewish Messiah, the Messiah of Israel has come. He's, he has come. He, was, uh, he came. He taught. He brought the covenant to its long-awaited conclusion. He offered himself as the final sacrifice, doing what none of the previous sacrifices could ever really do, which is the cleansing of sin and the inward transformation through the Holy Spirit. God raised him from the dead, vindicating him as our Messiah, and God actually raised him into heaven. He ascended into the heavens, and he is at the right hand of God, and he will come one day and judge the earth and put everything fully right. And we are that in the meantime, his heralds taking his message to the world. This is what people were hearing as the Christian faith was spreading. So you have a lot of Gentiles starting to come to faith in this Jesus, this Jewish Messiah. Well, as a result, then you have a question of, so, so, We've been raised all our life going to these pagan ceremonies, these civic pride festival days, these sacrifices in honor of the emperor or the gods or, or the, the deification of Rome itself or whatever it is. We've been doing that our whole lives. So now do we stop doing that? Do we stop going to the temples and participating? I mean, this is like their Thanksgiving in their culture. You know, this is like their, it, it's a cultural day. It's like their 4th of July, um, these civic holidays. And the question is, do we stop doing that? And, and many did. Um, but there was even more questions that spun off from that. All of the food, the meat, all of the meat in particular that you would eat in Corinth and in Rome, most likely if you bought it at the marketplace, I believe it was called the macellum. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's a Latin word. But you would the meat you would buy was meat that was left after a sacrifice by a worshiper in a temple to the God. So Roman citizen, either in Corinth or in Rome, you want to worship, you want to, you want to get the favor of the God or goddess that who's your patron deity. You take your sacrifice, your animal, you take it to the temple of that God. Let's say it's Aphrodite. You're trying to become more fertile. You're trying to have more children. Um, or, you know, you're trying to get someone to fall in love with you or whatever, whatever Aphrodite's realm is, and you want to appeal to her, uh, you take a sacrifice to that temple. And there, the priests of Aphrodite, the holy people of the God, the pagan priest would take and would sacrifice the animal, would prepare, would butcher it. They were basically butchers. Uh, they would butcher it like you would have at a butcher shop. And a part of the uh, animal would go to them, to the priest. That's how they would survive. And then a part of it would be offered to the God and it would be put as food for the God. And then you and your family or whoever brought with you, you would eat that in the temple. Temples were restaurants in the ancient world. You would eat your meat, your sacrifice in the temple 
and you were literally in their minds eating in the presence of the God and sharing a meal with the God. And that then ensured, or at least made it more likely, that you would get received the favor of that God, because to share a meal was to share in fellowship and was to incur favor. So you would share a meal with the God, and then you would receive blessing. Well, if you bring a lamb, you know, you and your family aren't going to eat a whole lamb. And even the priest may not eat a whole lamb, or an ox, or a cow, or something. So there's going to be leftover meat. Well, that leftover meat gets sold in the marketplace after all of this. It's been dedicated. It's been laid out. It's been prepared. It is food offered to the idol. And then when, when everything's done, then the temple sells that meat, the leftover, in the marketplace. And that's part of how the temple is funded. So by going, even by not even going to the temple and eating the meal there, which was a question that some Christians would have had. Hey, if my friend invites me, hey, we're going to uh, ask, you know, incur the favor of Zeus with a sacrifice and a festival meal. Uh, come with us. This is going to be big. It's for my family, and we're planting a new field, or we've just bought some new land, or whatever. Uh, come with us, you know, to this celebration. But it'd be like being invited to a bar mitzvah, or today invited to a wedding, or a, a, a baptism, or something, a communal event. Hey, come to this with us. Well, if you're a believer in Jesus from a pagan background, you're trying to distance yourself from paganism because you know that to do that is to worship that God. Even if it's just kind of fun and festive, there is still an element of worship. And so you would say, you might, some Christians said, okay, I'll go along, and they didn't think anything of it. Other Christians would say, no, I can't do that. And then the next question down from that was, okay, well, what if you're invited to somebody's house? Somebody is having a banquet or a feast or just a get-together, a backyard barbecue, and they're going to have meat on the barbecue. They're going to be grilling out lamb chops. Well, that meat will probably have come from a pagan sacrifice that was sold in the marketplace. So as a Christian, can you go to someone's house and eat idol meat? Literally, idol meat, idol stuff, idol food is what it was known as by the Jews. And Jews said, no, absolutely not. They would abstain from it. Christians were in this weird middle position of like, well, no, we believe in the God of Israel. We worship the God of Israel. But we also don't keep the Torah because that part of the covenant has been brought to completion. And we as Gentile followers of Jesus have freedom in Christ to follow him rather than submitting to Torah and becoming fully Jewish. And that's a whole issue in the New Testament. In Book of Acts, in Galatians, there's, there's all, I mean, that's a whole other issue. So this is the conundrum that Paul is faced with when the Corinthian Christians write to him. And he's going to speak specifically about those two things to them, and he's going to give them advice. And what he tells them is, it's fascinating, and it, to me, gives us the foundational ethic that we then can look at when we're discussing issues like Halloween or, or other issues in the Christian culture where there's contention and division. So look at what he says. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, now, about food sacrifice to idols. He's about what you were writing to me. Let's talk about it. We know that and he quotes from some of their slogans. The Corinthians had these slogans that they had parroted to Paul. And one of them was, we all possess knowledge. And, and it's the word gnosis, uh, like secret knowledge. And so Paul says, okay, yeah, we know we all possess knowledge. 
Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows does not yet know as he ought to know. The man who loves is known. And there's some manuscripts say loves God is known by God. Earlier manuscripts just leave the word God out. So look to the commentaries for the exact wording. But what Paul's doing is he's grounding he, what he's about to tell them. He's going to say, yes, I know you have knowledge. We all have knowledge. But knowledge, remember, can puff up. And the goal of Christian ethic is not knowledge-based, it's love-based. So what does love look like in your situation? Not what knowledge do you have that lets you be able to rationalize different things. So he says, verse 4, he gets back to it. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. And he's talking about going to a temple. He, he, this is not the marketplace issue. This is the in the temple, eating at a meal at a pagan festival. He says, we know an idol is nothing at all. That's, again, one of their slogans. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and there is no God but one. That's the core conviction of Judaism. But even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and lords, and he uses these terms that refer to pagan gods or mystic uh, 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 heads of the mystic religions that they would refer to as lords, so he's talking about all of the pagan, because remember, Rome and Corinth uh, was a cauldron of different religions and mystery rituals and, and, and pagan rites and offshoots. And it was just like a giant religious buffet. And so Paul says, look, yeah, there are many gods and many lords. In other words, that people worship, even though we know there is only. But we, for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there's but one Lord. Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So all the pagans, all of the cultures of the world, the religions of the world, they have many gods and many lords. I go to India most years, almost every year. And in India, Hindu culture, there are 330 million gods throughout the, the Hindu pantheon. Uh, everything's a god. Every, I mean, there's, they're uncountable. There are so many. And so Paul's basically saying the same thing. Yeah, there's many gods. There's many lords. But for us... There's one God and there's one Lord. So he's grounding everything he's about to tell them in the fact that they're, that idols, that there are no such thing as other gods in the objective sense, but subjectively in the eyes of the people in the surrounding culture, there are many gods and many Lords, many things get worshiped. And he says, but for us only one. So he's combating this kind of, well, it's all a manifestation of the divine. If I go pray to Zeus, if I go pray to Aphrodite, I'm really praying to God because it's all the same thing. You know, it's all, no, Paul's saying, not at all. It's not all the same thing. And, and for us, there's a very specific uh, devotion that we have. He says, but not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. So he's saying for some people, especially if they've come out of a pagan environment, all they know about idol feasts and food at temples is this is offered to the God. I'm having a meal with Zeus or, or Aphrodite or Apollo or whoever. I'm eating in the presence of the God. And Paul says, and they have not yet arrived. They haven't reached that level where they realize that those things don't actually have existence objectively on their own and that they're just eating food. Because for them, they can't separate it from the pagan connotations that it is intended 
to have. And so, Paul says, but food doesn't bring us near to God. We're no worse if we don't eat and no better if we do. Paul's saying, I know this, and some of you even know this, that food is just food. And it can't, there's nothing, Paul's trying to undercut the concept of magic. There's nothing magical about food. There's nothing magical about being in the presence of a god or goddess and eating food in a certain way that's going to secretly do something to you that you don't participate in. Paul's undercutting that view. But he's saying, but for people, there is an association between the things. And there's a subjective reality to this pagan festival that for some people among you, they can't disassociate the event with what's going on in the spiritual realm. And Paul's saying, but for God, it doesn't matter. He's like, this is not a big deal. And because it's not a big deal, he's going to take a very different turn than what they expected. You expect him to say, it's not a big deal, so do what you want. He's actually going to say the opposite. He's going to say, because it's not a big deal, just don't do it. Give it up. Because it's more important that you act out of love than out of proper gnosis, knowledge. So, verse 9, he says, Be careful that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block, scandalon, a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, and that's how we know he's talking about eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. And therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again so that it won't cause him to fall. This is what Paul's saying is, look, guys, somebody coming out of paganism is doing everything to disassociate from their old life. And if they may not have be at the point where they realize that God is God and anything received, all food is clean, as Jesus said, and anything received with thanksgiving is fine. But in their minds, they are not able to disassociate the two. And so then they see you going to a pagan temple and eating, and that makes them go, well, if they're doing it, I guess it's okay. And so without being convinced that it's right, they go in order to emulate or to go along with what they see the more mature Christian doing, and they're thrown back into their idolatry. That's what Paul's talking about and saying that, that somebody's destroyed because of your freedom. Now, here's what Paul's not saying. He's not saying that this is about somebody who sees a Christian eating in a temple and goes, well, I never, my word, how can you do such a, he's not talking about somebody who's offended. Paul doesn't care if people get offended by things he does. You see this all throughout his ministry. But what he's saying is if, if, if this will lead someone who's on the fence back into something that they've come out of, then I'll not ever eat meat ever again because it meat is my freedom and my ability to eat meat is not more important than someone's eternal destiny. That's what Paul's couching it as. This is the world that he's trying to craft for the Corinthians in the midst of this pagan culture. 
And so he goes on in, in, in verse nine, in chapter nine, then he's going to give a, a defense of that whole concept of freedoms and the rights that we have. And he's going to ground what he's saying in his authority as an apostle of Jesus. And then in 10, chapter 10, he's going to come back around to the issue about eating idle food. And he's going to take up the next level issue, which is, well, what about food that's just sold in a marketplace and that could have been offered to an idol, but we're eating it in the home of someone who invites us, who's a pagan, a non-believer. So he's going to get back to the issue in chapter 10, verse 14. This is what he says. Therefore, my dear friends, and he's already given warnings from Israel's history, and he's shown how Israel, even though they were celebrating God and had the rituals and the sacrificial system and the tabernacle, they still were lured back into idolatry and were destroyed in the wilderness. So he's kind of grounding things in Israel's example. He says, verse 14, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I'm saying or what I'm about to say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, and that's the what they, we would call communion today, a participation in the blood of Christ? In other words, when we do the Lord's Supper, aren't we somehow in some way participating in unity with Jesus? Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. No matter who we are, where we come from, we all come together. And even though we're many, when we come together and eat and drink in remembrance of me, as Jesus said, there is a union with Jesus that happens in the spiritual realm that's very, very real. In some way, as in full transubstantiation, the blood and the bread, bread and the wine actually become literal blood, literal flesh. No, no, no. We're not even, that's a whole other issue. And, and that's frankly one that doesn't matter to me because the point of Paul remains. When we come together and eat in the presence of Jesus and one another, even as we're many people, we're coming together and there's a joining and a unity that takes place. And that's a real thing. So. He goes on to says, look back to Israel, verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Don't those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? He's talking about the priests. Do I then mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? In other words, he's saying, but wait a minute, he's countering the objection. Are, are these idols real? Is this a real thing? He says, no, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. Paul's making a revolutionary claim. He's saying when people in Corinthian culture offer sacrifices to Zeus, Apollo, Aphrodite, any of the local gods, any of the mystery rites, anything, when they offer a sacrifice to those gods, they are offering a sacrifice to demons. They are offering a sacrifice to spiritual beings that are not God. That's what he means by demons. And so even though God's, even Zeus doesn't exist, Apollo doesn't exist, Aphrodite doesn't exist, um, Mithra doesn't exist, even though these things in reality don't exist, the, the pull of idolatry is ultimately demonic in its origin. And people are thinking they're worshiping this God who's noble and beautiful and virtuous and powerful and omniscient and blah, blah, blah. 
But in reality, they're just fellowshipping with demons. They're fellowshipping in the spiritual world with real spiritual forces, but not the ones they think they're celebrating. So this has implications. We'll look at some of these in a minute, but this has serious implications. And he's being very clear about this. And so he says, are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Then he goes on to quote uh, some slogans that they have. Verse 23, everything is permissible. It was a slogan, which is why the NIV puts it in quotes. But he counters, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat anything, now he's going to give advice, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So Paul's saying, look, yes, we've talked about idolatry is real. It is a danger and the demonic is a real thing, but it's not a matter of food and drink. It's not like you eating something is not what makes it idolatry. It's not what makes it defiling. And he's picking up on Jesus said, no, it's not what goes into the body that defiles. It's what's, what comes out. So he's walking this genius balance of these worldviews. And he's saying, it's not the food. It's the participation. It's the ceremony. It's the temple. It's the idolatry. That's the thing. Not the food. The food is unimportant. So Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, which is what would be said at a Jewish blessing over the food. Verse 27, if some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go like to their house to, hey, we just had a child, come celebrate with us or whatever. Go, eat whatever's put before you without raising questions of conscience. Go eat, don't worry about it. But, verse 28, but if anyone says to you, Oh, this has been offered in sacrifice. Like if a, if a pagan who wanted to warn of knew you were Christian and was like, oh, I don't want you to accidentally get defiled. So it'd be like us telling a Muslim friend, oh, this has pork in it. Like a way of being, you know, Paul says, if somebody tells you, oh, this has been offered to idols, if they make it a point, in other words, if they bring it up, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience sake, the other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So what Paul's saying is, look, I, my conscience doesn't matter. I don't care if somebody doesn't agree with my conscience. Uh, I'm, if somebody's offended by this, why should their scruples bind me and my freedom? That's a real thing that he's saying. But... If someone else's conscience is actually uh, thrown into disorder by my eating, don't do it. It's not worth it. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greek, or the church of God. Even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And that's the summary that Paul gives it. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So this, what does this have to do with Halloween? We, we're talking so much. What does this have to do with Halloween? Well, for some people, Halloween cannot be separated from the demonic. 
a lot of people in Salem, Massachusetts, that were members of Salem United Methodist Church, were once Wiccans. They came out of a Wiccan lifestyle. They came out of a pagan lifestyle. They absolutely believed that Halloween was a spiritual, worshipful holiday devoted to their faith. They came out of that. So for those many, not all, but many of those people, Halloween conjures up images of their old life in paganism. And, and they can't separate the two. So they avoid it. They don't celebrate it. They may do outreaches on Halloween. They may participate in the prayer walks and things like that. But they, they can't celebrate Halloween. For other people... Halloween is about getting candy, dressing up as Power Rangers and Ninja Turtles and, and, and Yoda. It's about being a kid. It's about make-believe. It's about spooky stories and, and uh, watching old monster movies on TNT. And, uh, it, you know, it, it's carving pumpkins and it's a family thing. And it's, there's, in other words, there's nothing pagan about it. For them, it does not have any pagan connotations. And so they go, why can't I celebrate this? Why can't I give thanks to God for a time of getting together, having fun, being kids, getting candy, and enjoying community? And so the, the, the advice I think that Paul would give both people is the same advice that he would give the Corinthians and the Romans. Look what he says in Romans 14. He's taught, it's a similar issue. It's not exactly the same because in Romans 14, he's, he's mostly now not talking about former pagans, but he's mostly talking about um, uh, Jewish followers of Jesus who were still have the Jewish aversion to pagan holidays in their minds. And so he's talking to Jews and Gentiles together who are followers of Jesus. And he says, verse Romans 14, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters, secondary matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything. And that would probably be the Gentile follower of Jesus. He didn't care. This is how I got meat. I grew up eating meat this way. I don't care. It's not, doesn't matter where it was once dedicated. Right now, it's on my plate, dedicated to my stomach and me thanking God for it that I can feed my family. So that's one person's faith allows him to eat everything. But another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Like in the time of Daniel. You know, it's probably who he has in mind, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, that, that during that time of in captivity in Babylon, in order to not be defiled by the Babylonian food, they told the king, hey, we're just going to eat vegetables, lest we even remotely partake in the idolatry of Babylon. And so for some Jews in the empire, Roman Empire, away from the temple, away from kosher methods of slaughtering, uh, this would have been the route that they go for their own conscience sake so that they don't participate in idolatry. So one man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. Oh, you superstitious fool. Why don't you just eat the meat? He's like, no, no, no. Don't look down on him. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. So somebody who avoids the meat and only eats vegetables is not to condemn and go, oh, you're participating in paganism. That's evil. You're going to be judged by God. But Paul's like, no, don't condemn and don't look down. Verse four, who are you to judge someone else's servant? 
To his own master he stands or falls, and he'll stand if the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than the other. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special, he's probably talking about the Sabbath and maybe some of the Jewish feast days. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. But he who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us live to himself alone and none of us die to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. He goes on down to say, verse 13, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him, it is unclean. That's a crazy statement. Paul says, look, in reality, there's no unclean food anymore. That was part of the first, the first covenant that Messiah came and did away with in his body. And now instead of separating us out of Jew Gentiles, which is what the food laws were intended to do, now we are all one in Christ. So any food that I eat is clean. Jesus said so. We're in the new covenant. There's freedom in Christ. Unless I think it's unclean. And then if I think it's unclean and yet still eat it, I am actually disobeying what I think God wants. And therefore, my conscience is defiled. Therefore, that food is unclean. You see what Paul's, it's a radical concept. Paul's introducing a level of subjectivity that makes some people squirm. People that want everything black and white, they want their theology nice and neat, they want a checklist of what they can and can't do. And Paul's saying, hold on, pump the brakes. Some things are wrong if you think they're wrong and do them, then that's wrong. Even if they're not wrong in and of themselves for everybody else. This is a fascinating concept that Christians should really give a lot of thought and meditation and prayer to. What in our life is okay unless we may think that it's not okay and do it anyway. In other words, our conscience plays a big part. It, it plays a huge part. Listen to what he's going to say. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, not offended, he's not talking about somebody who's offended. He's not saying, don't do it because a little church lady might get mad at you. He's not saying, don't do it because brother so-and-so doesn't approve. That's not what he's talking about. Get legalism out of here. He's talking about somebody who's like, oh, well, they're doing it, so I guess I can, should do it too, even though I don't th feel right about it. That's what he's talking about. If anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it's unclean. If your brother's distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. Two commands right there back to back that, that, that give us the balance of how to deal with cultural issues. One, do not allow what you can, uh, excuse me, do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. In other words, don't use your freedom to somebody else's detriment. That would be to the strong person that he would be saying. Now, to the weak person, he turns around and says, and do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. In other words, if you do consider eating the meat that may have been offered to an idol, 
a perfectly good and normal way of celebrating and that you thank God for it and it has none of the pagan connotations, then don't allow somebody to tell you it's evil because you know it's not. So there's this double-edged sword, this fine line of balance that Paul's walking. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food's clean, but it's wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So, whatever you believe about these things, keep them between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. It goes on down to verse 7. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. So, Paul's advice is groundbreaking. In and of himself, he takes a very liberal approach to issues of food and defilement of where food may have been and, and what we would think of as accidental defilement. Paul takes a very liberal approach and says, none of that, that, doesn't, none of that matters. All food, the, the earth is the Lord and all that's in it. Everything that's received with thanksgiving is clean. No food in and of itself is unclean. But he balances that by saying, but conscience is everything. And if a person who hasn't quite reached that level of understanding still thinks that something is tied, necessarily tied in with idolatry, then not only should they not participate, but you, for their sake, should avoid leading them into it. So that's the principle. That's the biblical principle that Paul's giving to his audience in Rome and in Corinth. What does that have to do with Halloween? Well, hopefully now you're able to now approach the issue of Halloween with some things, some, some uh, foundational axioms in place. For some people... Halloween cannot be separated from its paganness. When they see Halloween, they think demons, seances, talking to the dead, tarot cards, crystals, Wiccan rituals, uh, whatever it is, that is Halloween for them. So for me to then go, oh, no, don't be silly. It's none of that. Come on to this Halloween party. I'll show you. Paul's saying, no. Don't do that. You could be leading them back into something that they've been fighting tooth and nail to get away from. And you would be destroying someone for whom Christ died. For other people, Halloween doesn't mean any of those things. Halloween means the great pumpkin Charlie Brown on TV, carving jack-o'-lanterns, uh, black cats and, and 
little ladies with green nose, big noses, riding around on broomsticks, stirring cauldrons, and and this this kind of like this buffoonish, mythical, like not even evil, but like silliness, spookiness is what we would say. There's a difference between spooky and evil, and that for some people, Halloween is evil. For some people, it's just spooky. It's just it's just about you know telling stories by the campfire. Uh, dressing up as your favorite G.I. Joe character or Thundercat or I'm an 80s kid. So those are my examples. Um, getting candy in your neighborhood, you know, going to parties with friends and just hanging out. And, and it's, it has no spiritual connotations whatsoever. For those people, Paul would say, cool, do your thing and give thanks to God and make sure that everything you're doing in those settings is for the glory of God. Make sure you're honoring, make sure you can do everything as if Jesus is standing right there beside you with a clear conscience and you're fine. So he's giving advice and then his overall advice to people on both sides is don't judge each other if you disagree on this. Don't condemn each other if you disagree on this. This is adiaphora. This is a disputable matter. This is a secondary thing. This is not something upon which it, it actually matters. Now, he does say, do not go to participate in pagan idolatry. So he is clear, no, you can't, as a Corinthian follower of Jesus, go to a feast in the temple of Zeus, eating food offered to Zeus, on the altar to Zeus, in celebration and an invocation of the blessings of Zeus. You can't do that. You can't do that. That is idolatry. And you're flirting with, don't do that. So if there is Halloween celebration that is intentionally demonic, intentionally pagan, intentionally a celebration of actual evil, not just scariness or spookiness, but like evil, have nothing to do with that as a Christian. But if it's not, if it's just dressing up and getting candy and putting your kids in cute little Yoda costumes or little handmade ghost costumes made out of a sheet. That was my first costume that my mom made. Uh, or dressing up like Woody or Buzz from Toy Story. Go, who cares? That's not, it, it, yeah, that's fine. So this is the, the advice that Paul would give it to the Christians, and it makes them reason. So today, what would be some parallels? As we finish out, we got about five more minutes. Um, I was trying to think up some parallels that are good and that are not bad. So if people say, well, if you participate in Halloween, you may accidentally, you may unknowingly invite demons into your life. That's a stretch. That's a real stretch, uh, unless you're like doing a seance or something, because there are many things that we take, that we say, that we do, that have roots at some point in history in paganism. If you use the word Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you're invoking pagan gods. Wednesday used to be Odin's day. Thursday was Thor's day. Friday was Frigga's day. Saturday, Saturn day. So even the days of the week that we use have roots in pagan idolatry. Does that mean that every time we use the days of the week, we are actually secretly or unknowingly inviting pagan gods, Norse gods, to rule our lives? No. Because it's so far removed from that that it has become something completely different in our language, in our culture. 
devil's food cake. Like, if you eat devil, devil's food cake, how much more pagan can something sound? But it's delicious, especially with ice cream on it. It's, it's just a name. It was never, it's not, you're not invoking the devil when you eat it. I mean, you may if gluttony is your sin, but in general, devil's food cake. You know, cheering for the Duke Blue Devils or the Jersey Devils in hockey or the Demon Deacons of Wake Forest. You know, these sports teams that have names that are, that are pagan, demonic. Um, they're just masked. They're not, you're, they're, they were never actual idolatry. And so we can't look at that and make a one-to-one comparison with idolatry. Getting a fortune cookie at a Chinese restaurant, cracking open your fortune cookie, you're not invoking, uh, you know, Confucian concepts of, of, of divination. No, it's, it's not even a Chinese thing. It was invented in America. They don't even have fortune cookies in China. It's, a, it's just this thing. It's a cultural thing with no religious significance whatsoever unless you apply religious significance to it. Then it would be wrong. But nobody really applies religious significance to these things I'm listing. So they aren't good examples of accidental idolatry. Uh, I think examples that would fit the bill, things that would qualify as pagan idolatry in our culture, would be things like participating in public events where there's an invocation to other gods or an invocation to to other spirits to come guide us as we seek to blah, 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 blah. That's actual praying to idols. And so Christians have to be very careful about participation. Now, I don't mean being somewhere and somebody prays to another God, because we can't help what people outside the church do. But I'm talking about willing participation, going to a ceremony where and agreeing with an opening prayer that's directed to the goddess Sophia, or to the universe, you know, all of the universe vibes manifest, all the secret, all that stuff, very trendy in secular culture. And it creeps into the church. I have so many Christian girlfriends that talk about vibes, the universe manifest, not even realizing, yeah, this is typical, like trendy girl language. I mean, some guys do it too, but it's more women that do it. Um, not realizing that it's, they just think it's trendy cultural language. Not realizing it's actually pretty, pretty pagan, pretty pantheistic, if you actually think about what you're saying. Uh, it's deifying the creation by talking to, praying to, asking the universe to do something. So I would say that's actually an example of modern paganism that Christians should definitely avoid and, and should be a little more careful with how we talk about those types of things. Um, participating in seances or astrology. I know Christians that do tarot cards. That, no, you can't do that biblically. I mean, that is one of the things that Paul would say, no, that is impermissible for Christians. If you're not a Christian, do what you want. Play with all the crystals you want, read the cards, the tea leaves, uh, any of these divination methods that's thoroughly pagan. It has no place in the Christian worldview. So if you're not a Christian, whatever, do your thing. We're not, who are we to judge those outside the church? But for Christians, if you call yourself a Christian, then things like, oh, I need this crystal in my room because it gives me energy. I need to burn some sage to get the spirits and the vibes clear out of my room. I need to, no, those are thoroughly, thoroughly pagan. Seances, talking to the dead. Oh, I went and visited this person and she 
brought my grandmother back and we had this conversation. No, that was not your grandmother, whoever, whatever it was, whether it was a charlatan uh, person just taking your money or whether there was actually something spiritual going on and it was super convincing. Scripture's clear. That was not from God. I mean, there is stuff that's spiritual that's also not good. And that's something to be aware of, especially in the West. Um, you know, so those types of things would be examples that would be comparable to going and eating at a pagan uh, banquet in a temple. Going trick-or-treating, letting your kids dress up as dinosaurs or, or He-Man or Woody and Buzz or, or Frozen, Elsa and whoever. I don't even, I can't keep up with Mario and Luigi. You know. That's not worshiping pagan gods or goddesses. That's, not, that's like saying Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday and using things that used to have pagan connotations but don't any longer. That's how most people or a lot of people look at Halloween. So if you're a Christian who can't separate the paganness from Halloween, biblical advice, don't celebrate Halloween. But do not condemn those who do. And if you're a Christian who doesn't see anything pagan about Halloween, and you're able to celebrate it, thanking God for the time of fellowship and friendly imagination and good fun, do it. But don't look down on Christians who can't because of their conscience. Don't, don't try to get them to celebrate. Oh, just come on, do it. Quit being a stick in the mud. No. Let their conscience and the Holy Spirit direct them. Don't look down on them. And don't use your freedom to try to get them to do something that they are not convinced yet is acceptable. And in this way, we build each other up rather than tearing each other down. And that's what's important in the Christian faith. Whether you eat, whether you drink, whether you trick or treat, whether you don't. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God and don't condemn each other for matters that are disputable. And I absolutely believe this is one example, Halloween celebration is one example of a disputable matter that you can have good reason for abstaining from or good reason for participating in. So whichever one of those is you, cool. As long as you're convinced, as long as your conscience is clear, and as long as you're doing it for the glory of God, Rock on.